0: If you've ever had criticism for cancel culture, which I have, please recognize that what the president is asking for is cancel culture on steroids backed by the power of the Oval Office. We cannot have this in our country. This is fundamentally undemocratic. And you can believe that political correctness has run amok all day. That is very, very different than what's going on right now. This is Sarah. This is Beth. You're listening to Pantsuit Politics, the home of grace-filled political conversations. Thank you for joining us for today's episode of Pantsuit Politics during a week. I think our title as self-appointed political therapist for America is going to come into play. It has been a hard week and we're just going to get right into discussing all of the news and the reactions to the president's tweets and more tweets and rallies. I think this is a good time, Sarah, for us to talk through everything that's happened and to answer a question that keeps coming up on social media and in our email, which is how do you consume this news and pay attention and stay with it? without being overwhelmed and discouraged.
1: We really do want to thank everybody for the great feedback we got from Tuesday's show. We know it was a long one. We know it was an intense one. But seeing all your love and support and reading all your messages on Instagram and Twitter and Facebook, it really helps. I mean, that's definitely a part of the process is all of us feeling like we're not alone and that we're all devastated by the turn um, the news have taken in the last week. It helps. It helps a lot.
0: I did not watch the president's rally this week in North Carolina. I have just found that that's not great for me. So I choose to consume the president's remarks whenever possible by reading them. I did, however, watch video footage of clips of the rally where the crowd in response to the president talking specifically about Representative Omar began to chant, send her back.
1: I drove home from Nashville last night. I've been there with my youngest son who's going through some physical therapy. So I was already pretty emotional and I got home really late and I laid in bed next to my husband and we were talking about things and he said, oh, by the way, the president held a rally tonight and his supporters chanted, send her back. And I, it's not like I hadn't been thinking about this and reading about this and talking about it on Tuesday. I don't know if it was because I was tired and emotional already, and but I still feel so upset by it this morning. I just how can I still be appalled at this point? How can I still feel such shame for where we are as a country to hear American citizens chant about another American citizen send her back the most ugly racist taunt? from our history to hear ministers from North Carolina say we're hearing this is being yelled at our children to see the rise in this hateful rhetoric to see people defending it I mean I I, I don't want to be hysterical but it's a little bit how I feel when will it be enough like He's going to get her killed or he's going to get somebody else beaten. Or will it be enough when we see lynchings again with signs around people's neck? Go back to where you came from. What? I I don't even know what to say. It's so disgusting. It gives me a stomach ache. It leaves me in tears. It leaves me filled with anxiety. You know, I don't have a lot of good advice for how to process something like this because it's so ugly. There is no processing. We just have to sit with the ugliness. You know, I texted my friends yesterday when they were expressing just the horror and disgusting nature of last week. And I was trying to say, you know, I do believe in the power of love. And I I do believe that there are good things happening in America that don't make the headlines. And that's what I try to tell myself. But it's just so ugly. It's so ugly. I think there are a couple of things
0: going on that I want to be sure we talk about here because there is such a concerted effort right now to disclaim any racism in the president's remarks and to isolate political issues. Number one, I think that if you are a person inclined to detach what the president is saying from race, it's really important to ask why. What is it that makes me defensive about race here? A lot of people have shared with us the CNN interview of five women in Texas, all white women, saying that they still support the president, they're glad he said what he said, and they don't think he's racist. First of all, I'm unclear about the journalistic value of that video. But more than that, I would love to sit down and talk with them and say, let's have a conversation about why we are so resistant to racist as a word and why we are unwilling to acknowledge an element of race when the president is clearly, he's identifying these people. So if you were first defending his tweets by saying, he didn't identify the people, well, he has now. He has named names. They are all women of color. So let's have a hard examination about why we're not willing to go there. But secondly, even if you aren't, what is playing out right now is a version of McCarthyism. We've done this before. The idea that being socialist and let's let's just all because there is limited time in the universe Accept socialism as an accurate description of what these four women are talking about, okay? And, and like not debate the many, many layers of what that can mean for today and for this discussion. I do not agree with many of the policy proposals from these four congresswomen, but the idea that we label someone as a socialist and we don't want them in our country bef- anymore because of it is something we've done in this country. And it has had extremely ugly results. So whether you think what's going on is racial or political, and I would submit to you that it is very much both. And I think race is driving the bus here, if I'm being honest. But whatever combination of those things you think it is, it is dangerous. He has crossed a line in the way he's talking about it. And we need only look to our very recent history to understand that. I can't wrap my mind I can't wrap my mind around the folks who are defending these comments on any basis.
1: There's another aspect of this that I want to talk about as well. We've had some sort of offline conversations about it, which is I don't know if this is a positive or a negative. Maybe we'll just treat it as neutral. But what has happened the last week, and particularly at the rally yesterday, is that we are seeing very clearly that this is going to be Donald Trump's re-election strategy. Slash and burn. You know, let's make enemies of our fellow Americans. Let's stoke fears around socialism. And absolutely, let's play to people's Racism. And so, how do we respond? What are we going to do? We're all appalled. We're all disgusted. But now we know that this is how he is going to treat his presidential campaign.
0: I was listening to MSNBC in the car yesterday, and then I read an op-ed from Thomas Friedman in the New York Times this morning. And both of them, uh, both Stephanie Ruhl and Thomas Friedman, were making versions of an argument that has been in the conversation for a while, but I think with renewed urgency, which is this. Democrats could you just please nominate a decent person who is mostly focused on creating good jobs and restoring America to someplace that doesn't make us all feel like we are on the brink of crisis? And can we leave the race for big ideas and fundamentally reordering our economy to another day? given the urgency of not having someone who speaks like this in the Oval Office anymore and someone who incites violence in the Oval Office anymore. So um, I left a message for you, Sarah, and uh, for Elise, our managing director, about that. I'm just curious about your reactions. I thought it was fascinating. I really understand it. I also really understand some of the counter arguments. And I'm struggling personally with navigating where to focus right now, because I think political strategy is always relevant, especially going into an election, especially going into a high stakes election. I also feel so compelled, especially in light of what happened at this rally, to spend most of my energy thinking about what we just person to person, voter to voter need to be doing amongst ourselves to talk about what's going on here. And so I'm I'm interested in your thoughts on all of that.
1: I was thinking about it a lot and I definitely understand the fear and anxiety when he exposes this strategy and everybody's sort of oh my gosh, how do we combat this? This is what we're going to be facing. We absolutely cannot let him win with this racist approach to campaign politics. I mean, I think the first thing to think about very carefully and to talk about amongst ourselves and face is that whether or not Donald Trump wins re-election, and I desperately hope he does not, damage has been done. Damage will continue to be done as he talks like this over the next year. People are going to get hurt. People are already hurt. And so I think, you know, we just have to sit with the pain that this is exposing with the um, reality of some of our fellow Americans' views and reactions and fear-based approach to their fellow citizens. So I think, I mean, we just have to... No one's going to save us unless there is impeachment, I suppose. But, you know, we're stuck with this racist, hateful man for the next few months. And we have to figure out how we're going to survive and how we're going to deal with the damage that he is doing. So, I mean, that's the first thing. And then as far as moving forward as a strategy I've been thinking a lot about the book I kept talking about for months in the spring that I was reading by Ibram X Kendi stamp from the beginning he wrote a really amazing piece in the Atlantic that I will link in the show notes called Am I an American? And I you know I can't read too much of it cuz I'll start crying again it's so powerful. And it, you know in his book he formulates three categories which are segregationists assimilationist, and anti-racist. His next book is called How to Be an Anti-Racist, and I can't wait for it to come out. But, you know, when you talk about that history and looking back at what we've done in the past um, with McCarthyism, I think it's also a worthwhile examination to look back at what we've done in the past when we've been faced with these flashpoints in American politics surrounding race. When we were writing the Constitution and we had to decide basically what to do with slavery and make those compromises, when we were making the compromises in the mid-1800s, when we were looking at Reconstruction, when we were making compromises with the South there, when we were talking about Jim Crow, all these times when we had to look at what was going on and the anger and fear. Fear and racism in a huge part of the American population and make a call. And he says in this piece the moderate strategized then, as the moderate still do now, based on what was required to soothe white sensibilities. As the clergyman Robert Finley wrote in The Thoughts of the Colonization of Free Blacks in 1816 through colonization. The evil of slavery will be diminished and in a way so gradual as to prepare the whites for the happy and progressive change. And I guess when I think about how we're going to deal with this racist strategy, what I don't want to do is ask my fellow black and brown citizens to be concerned with soothing the racist fears of white swing voters I just, I cannot make that ask. I cannot do it. And I don't think it's ever led to a good result. We just punt. We just say, look over here. Don't be scared. We're not really changing racial politics in America. Look over here. Don't be scared at the increasingly changing demographics of America. And I just, I don't want to do it again. I don't want to say, don't be scared. We'll elect Joe Biden so we'll just get rid of Donald Trump because that's what we do, right? We operate out of fear. What The other option is so much worse. Swallow this bitter pill of compromise on your own humanity and equality. The idea that we should find a candidate that's so far from AOC, don't link them to AOC because they're all scared of AOC. No, the, the fear is the problem. There's nothing wrong with her. There's nothing wrong with Representative Presley or Representative Omar or Representative Tlaib. They might hold views you find problematic. But there's nothing fundamentally wrong with being a young woman of color with even minority views on foreign policy, economic policy, and to be challenging to the power structure in the country. And... That they stoke all this stuff. I I just don't want to play to a strategy that says you're right to be afraid of them. And they're really, they're too much. So look over here. I just, I can't stomach. I, I don't think it's ever served us to do that. I think we just punt and we distract and we never face the ugliness of our, the history of racism in the United States and the way that we have continued to treat our fellow citizens as less than. And, you know, watching people chant that vitriol and watching him bask in it is as harmful and painful as it is. Maybe we need that. Maybe we need that burn. Maybe we need that. And I'm talking particularly about white Americans who, when I tell ourselves we live in some sort of post-racial society, to, to see, just to see the ugliness so that we can face it for maybe the first time in America's history and not compromise and move on quick so we don't have to think about it. I don't know. I don't know.
0: We got an email this week which I appreciated and respected saying the person was um, interested in the conversation that we had on Tuesday's episode was also disappointed that we lacked some balance in criticism, talking about violent acts carried out by Antifa. And I understand where that person is coming from. And I think that as I've considered the email and similar messages from others, I keep coming around to the fact that it is so difficult to unwind politics from all these discussions in my mind when there's limited time in the universe when we're already recording a 90 minute episode what antifa is doing is so small on the national stage that it doesn't make my radar it does not in me provoke the same kind of hurt and anger that what's happening in the republican party provokes because the leadership is not there Nancy Pelosi is one of the most cool-headed people in the country right now, right? She's upset, but she has a strategy that she's working. And you don't have her stoking that kind of violence. There are tempering forces in the Democratic Party. And part of what a party should be and what makes a party go is having people really pushing the envelope around the edges and people gravitating toward the center, and leadership that knows how to meld all of those things. And sometimes that does result in the kind of tension that's been reported on in the Democratic Party. I think that's a healthy tension. I think when you have Nancy Pelosi talking about how these four women are four votes, and that's her analysis, there's something really healthy about that. And I think when those four women take the microphone and say, we are more than four votes, we represent a lot of America, and it's a lot of America that's been marginalized for too long, I think that's really healthy and important. And it is the ability to bring all of that together into something that translates into action sometimes, that translates into tabling sometimes, which we've had a very poignant example of this week with the impeachment vote, um, and that sometimes stalls and really frustrates people. That's just how good, healthy organizations function. Contrast that to the Republican Party, where you have this week every elected official, except for four House members, deciding to accept the unacceptable from the president, to make excuses, to tell us that what we read and hear is not what's actually being written and said. Contrast that with a party. I can't even believe that I feel defensive of this person right now. But Anthony Scaramucci got disinvited from a fundraiser for daring on Twitter to say that the president's remarks were racially charged. The Florida Palm Beach GOP Said to Anthony Scaramucci, that level of criticism of this president is unacceptable. And you may not come here to this event that is about raising dollars to get him reelected. Now, listen, everybody, if you've ever had criticism for cancel culture, which I have, please recognize that what the president is asking for is cancel culture on steroids backed by the power of the Oval Office. We cannot have this in our country. This is fundamentally undemocratic. And you can believe that political correctness has run amok all day. That is very, very different than what's going on right now. There is a structure and a force, an unmatched power in our country that the federal government holds that is explicitly endorsing the idea that this president cannot have critics.
1: And I just find myself thinking like, What will it take? What will it take for you to criticize him? What will it take? I I truly honestly believe he is putting all four of those women's security at risk, particularly Representative Omar. Does she need to be physically harmed before it's enough? Is it enough that they scream it at children? Does somebody need to get beat up? Does somebody need to get lynched? I Honestly, I don't. What would it take for you to say, you know What? He's, he did something wrong. That's it. It's not like we're saying support impeachment, although that would be great. Just a simple, this is unacceptable. And they won't do it. We will be right back after this short message from our sponsor. We are special breakfast people here at Pantsu Politics, but not just when Beth and I are on the road. The truth is I want something warm from the oven every Saturday morning and $30 off your first box when you go to wildgrain.com slash pantsuit. That's wildgrain.com slash pantsuit or you can use promo code pantsuit at checkout. Looking for the perfect gift to celebrate the moms in your life? Aura frames are beautiful, Wi-Fi connected digital picture frames that allow you to share and display unlimited photos. It's super easy to upload and share photos via the Aura app. And if you're giving an Aura as a gift, you can even personalize the frame with preloaded photos and memories. You guys, I love my Aura frames. I have one in my office. I have one in my kitchen. I have given one as a housewarming gift. I have given one as Mother's Day, Father's Day. They are the most amazing gifts because this app is a game changer, in my personal opinion, in digital frames. It makes it so, so easy to get the pictures on there and even videos. It plays like you're in Harry Potter, you guys. It is the best. I love mine so much. And right now, Aura has a great deal for Mother's Day. Listeners can save on the perfect gift by visiting AuraFrames.com to get $30 off plus free shipping on their best-selling frame. That's A-U-R-A-Frames.com. Use code Pantsuit at checkout to save. Terms and conditions apply. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. Can I get something off my chest? Every day I feel a little pang of sadness. I think about Griffin going away to college. Y'all, oh, he's a freshman in high school. This is not healthy or normal. This is why I have it on my list of things to talk to my therapist about. We all carry around these things, big and small. When we keep them bottled up, it can start to affect us. Therapy is a safe space to get these things off your chest and to figure out how to work through whatever's weighing you down. If you're thinking about starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online, designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapist anytime for no additional charge. You got to get it off your chest and you can get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com pantsuit today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P.com slash pantsuit. I will say when we're talking about just the utter failure of Republican leadership to do anything in the face of the overt racism of the president of the United States. I did think in my experience with politicians about, yes, 80 percent of the time they are concerned with their own reelection and their own hold on power, which in the Trump party. I mean, I feel like I should just stop calling it the Republican Party. Let's just call it what it is, the party of Trump. You know, it's this this zero tolerance. You cannot criticize him or you're done. But there is a solid 20% of the time they are very concerned with their own legacy. And how can they not watch a crowd of people chant, send her back and think, yikes, how are the history books going to remember me? You know, there's enough ego tied up in your legacy that you would think that would get to some of them.
0: You would think so. I'm really... Interested in what the calculus is for some of these individuals, especially people who are privately willing to talk reporters heads off about how bad all this is, people who are privately saying how discouraged they are. I can't imagine believing that my congressional seat is worth my integrity. I can't imagine that. You know, I think about that in relation to this podcast all the time. We built this podcast on the... Marketing that you are left leaning and I am right leaning. And we have, and that has eroded over the four almost four years we've been doing this. And it's scary sometimes, but I would rather lose this podcast and everything attached to it than come on here and be dishonest about what I see happening in the world and come on here and defend things that are indefensible and use my voice on this show to hurt people. By telling them that the president singling out four women in Congress, four women, and four women who happen to be of color, and one of whom happens to have been a refugee into this country, by using my voice to say that's okay. I can't imagine doing that. So if I'm willing to lose something that we worked really hard to build from nothing because of that integrity that matters to me more, I just can't imagine translating to like, Here's my seat as one of, you know, 535 representatives in this country. And it matters more to me than stepping up and saying that this is wrong.
1: In my more hopeful moments this week, you know, I don't I hope some of them see that and come around. What I think about the majority of Americans is that we do have a long history of you know, being exposed to our own racist policies and struggling to come to grips with that and often not in the best ways and not with the best policy. What we don't have a lot of history with, from my perspective at least, is the idea that we would say racism is bad and then go back Backwards. Like, I I see that there's a struggle to go forward, and we pause and we go back a little bit and then we go forward. But the idea that we've spent the last 30 years or more telling every child in America, mostly, it's bad to be racist. We should be colorblind. America is not, we don't want to be racist. Being racist is bad. And then all of a sudden, what he's going to convince everybody, and we're all going to. Be gaslit by the Republican Party that being racist is cool. That seems like a big lift for me. It seems like a big lift. I have
0: a hard time balancing sharing your optimism about that, which I I do in a sense, and wanting to keep the problem in proper scope. And also wanting to keep the problem in proper scope and recognizing that what the president says does matter and what the Republican Party is doing matters a lot. And there are very impressionable people who are ready to grasp onto this message for a variety of reasons from a variety of backgrounds that this is what our children see in the Oval Office. This is the first president that Jane and Griffin are going to remember, you know, and it Maybe not Griffin. Maybe Griffin's a little more. Griffin definitely remembers
1: Barack Obama. But I mean,
0: this is the first president that Jane is going to remember. And that is heartbreaking for me. It's heartbreaking for me, you know? And I can do everything within my power to talk with her about what our values are. I cannot filter out everything that's coming at her from this president and the culture around this president. And I especially cannot do that when. So many people in our community have made this trade-off and decided that whatever mm-hmm. his policies even means to them, the judges he appoints, whatever it is about him that attracts them, that those things are important enough that we throw everything else out the window. It makes it really hard to know what's getting in with our kids and what's going to develop over time and what's going to develop in the overall context of time when You think about the way we're treating. Let's say we get a Democratic president in who has a comprehensive plan to fix what's going on at the border, which is truly the one thing that I care the most about in this election. And they do that and they get it right. And they. In a way that we all recognize is responsible and pragmatic and compassionate, are able to stem that problem, the damage of what. A lot of people believe about America and the way the American government has treated them and their families is done. I believe in my core that we are at risk of radicalizing people against this country by holding them in these detention facilities in Texas. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And that is going to last for more than one generation. And so while I completely agree with you that I, I think enough people understand that we, we've made a lot of progress and that we don't judge people by the color of their skin and that one ethnicity or one background is not better than another. I am fearful of what's coming next. And I think it's mm-hmm. especially important for me as a middle-class white woman in Kentucky not to get at all complacent about
1: that and not to
0: minimize what's happening in the national conversation right now.
1: I think what I have to really watch with myself is it's like I can read those Axios daily emails and they had a section today, a really crazy chart showing the the move in population in all these states. And how, you know, this is just the death knell (laughs) over the next few decades for the Republican Party. This might... In worst-case scenario, look, this might be a short-term strategy that works. Fear and hate and xenophobia and racism. Let's not fool ourselves that sometimes that motivates people. So it might even work now. But the idea that this is not going to do permanent damage to the Republican Party, I think, is insane. And so I can put myself in the space where I'm like... Yay, this is going to kill the Republican Party. But that's not, I mean, again, that's not the most important thing, even if it does, the trauma and damage that this is doing to the fabric of our country and to individual Americans, I don't want to orient myself around the impact of his nastiness and just think about white people cuz i think that's just so easy to do it's so easy to think about the white people who like this racist crap or let's not make the white moderates mad like it's just you know it's just built into our our functioning like we orient ourselves around the white population and how does this impact them and what are they thinking and i try so hard not to do that but at the same time like i do think there's part of that population that just needs to see the ugliness, you know, you talk a lot of times about like a clean break. I just wish there was a way for us to expose the nastiness of racism in this country to white people who can, because of privilege and because of their own skin and color, can look away without re-traumatizing and hurting every black and brown person at the same time. I just because i think you know facing the ugliness is an important part of the process but i don't want to ask that of our fellow citizens who have different color skin it just breaks my heart and i but i you know i think there's just a, there's a pain of this current moment that has to just be witnessed we cannot clean it up we cannot fix it we cannot strategize it away we just have to Walk through it. And we have to reach out to people we know are traumatized and we have to check on them and we have to check on each other and we have to have these conversations and be sad about it and tell people we're sad about it and not clean it
0: up. I want to acknowledge that as I listen to you say, you know, I can comfort myself and say, yeah, this is going to kill the Republican Party. Um, and as I listen to the way you're using the word moderate, which is a word that I strongly identify with, I have some problems there. Um, I, I despise what the Republican Party is right now. I also do not believe it is healthy for this country not to have the gas and the brakes like we talk about all the time. The Republican Party is not being the brakes right now in the way that I think they need to um, or in any meaningful way. What we have is giant government from the republican party just being used against immigrants um, and used in service of a massive military industrial complex so i don't think that we have a true breaks in the way that you and i talk about those two ideologies being important but i do think that needs to exist in the country and i think it is um frustrating for people to hear the kind of discussion that we're having right now who sincerely hold those beliefs and i what i want to say is I think that you also have to have conversations in context. And so a lot of people have been asking me lately, do I still enjoy doing this podcast? And I totally understand what's at the root of that question. And I think it's that, one, the news is so terrible and frustrating and such a a slog. Like, how do you have anything new to say about Donald Trump and I agree, that's that's no fun. And I think the other thing is some of the frustration that you hear from journalists and members of Congress that um, we are in a culture now where if you have any disagreement with the person you're talking with, it becomes miserable and you feel attacked constantly and you have to be so very careful. And so what I try to think about is having every one of our conversations in context. So today, in light of what the news is, The risk of this podcast to me is not properly settling whether political moderate is the same as a moderate on issues of race, whether we're really talking about politics or values, whether, you know, to what extent policy is involved. To me, the risk today is having people listen to the show with any lack of clarity about how we feel about the president's current conduct because that is what is consuming America right now. And I think it's important enough that it should consume America right now. That is not to say that you leave behind all those other things. It just means they don't need to come to the front of the line right now. And I think that that takes me back to the conversation about the Democratic nomination because what I hear in the Stephanie Rule and Tom Friedman remarks and lots of other people you know, in terms of let's nominate someone who can beat the president and and not go to free college, Medicare for all, and the government takes over lots and lots of programs immediately isn't really, I don't think, about being moderate on values issues. It's almost like really doubling down on values issues in a way that is clear isn't kind of mucked up by a bunch of social programs that everyone cares about. Are there gendered and racial components to Joe Biden being the representative of that? Absolutely. And I think that's the conversation to unpack. And how how do we unpack it responsibly? It takes a lot of time and a lot of care and a lot of thought and a lot of openness. I think the biggest Work that I can do as an individual and why doing this podcast is still a joy for me, despite everything that we've been talking about is that it is an exercise in constantly learning how to check my defensiveness and how to check my instincts to bring something to the table because it exists in me somewhere, but maybe isn't relevant to what's on the table right now. Like that's the personal growth of these conversations. It is not how nice can I be in this discussion with you, Sarah, or how much compromise can I find with you? It's can I hold on to all of that and then like articulate what I'm doing so that I'm able to repeat it and so that we're able to share that with other people like that to me is the way you stay grounded. You keep coming back to, OK, what did I learn here and how can I do this better next time? And how can I use these skills to talk to folks who are susceptible to this language, to talk to the people I love who are defending the president's remarks in a way that might make an impact?
1: So I want to say a couple of things. I think that if you are a person with conservative values as you are, the Republican Party gave you a gift early in this presidency, if not decades before, by really abandoning those values. And if I was a person who felt who had strong conservative values about the size of the American government and as a person who believes just like you do, that there is a role for the breaks inside these conversations, the fastest and most important thing you should do is abandon the Republican Party, because if those values are important to you, the way to kick them, kill them the quickest is to attach them to the racist policies of the Republican Party. So if those and I'm not telling I'm not speaking to you as an individual, I'm just saying, like, if those conservative values are really important and you think that is essential to the functioning of our democracy, run, don't walk. Away from this racism, because we do need you at the table and it can't be with a devil's bargain of xenophobia and white nationalism. So, I, I mean, I think that just using the word conservative versus Republican is like so key to the to the Stephanie rule. We don't want don't scare people with your economic restructuring kind of argument. You know, I do use the word White moderate, because I think it's important, because what has happened in the past is we've said, hey, no, we're really talking about values, but we'll be incrementalist on policies or opposite. But the values of racial justice cannot be separate from a restructuring of an economy that suppresses black wealth, that builds the racial pay gap, that They have to they're they're related. And I think so many times over our history, we've said, hey, we'll say the good things, but we're going to keep the policies that perpetuate this inequality in place because we don't want to spook the South and lose those voters. And we can't I just I don't want to do that anymore. Let's own that if the values are true, then the systems have to support the values. And right now they do not. And I mean, I think that's that's what that conversation is getting at and you know that that's what's important to me in a democratic nominee. I want somebody who's ready to do big things to support these values. And I know that's hard to think about and I know that's hard to talk about. But we're at a hard point. And part of the impact of this presidency is we're all going to look at we're all going to be facing a lot of very difficult emotional conversations with our fellow citizens, with people we love with ourselves as we face hard conversations about meritocracy and access to wealth and justice, that's hard. It's going to be particularly hard as white people. So we just, it's, that's just where we're at. It sucks. It's going to be hard. Um, and he's making it clear how, just how hard it's going to be. And what I'm kind of struggle with and I've been wanting to talk to you about is like, how do we do that dance between don't, he's trying to distract us and and keep doing the work without acknowledging yeah but his distraction is horrific you know what i mean like that's where i struggle is like how do we talk about this how do we not get sidetracked i don't even like the word sidetracked of course we should be sidetracked by the president's supporters chanting send her back i don't that's that's the dance that i really struggle with
0: Well, I have the same reaction to that question as to what you just said about the economy and and translating the values to larger actions. I think the key in both of these areas is prioritization. I don't think that Stephanie Ruhle or Tom Friedman or any of the people making these arguments would disagree with you that the economy is going to have to change to facilitate greater equality. It is. I agree with that. I'm a small government person and I agree with that. I think the argument is more... Let's prioritize because there is limited time for any president to get certain things done. And the first priority has to be restoring some kind of sanity around this office. And that might require a different skill set than a person who is like a burn it all down, let's start over on everything kind of person. I wish the debates would get to this more. I would like to hear what the priorities of these candidates are. Like, for me, I am super clear. Immigration is my priority right now. That's not everyone's. Let's have a debate about what the appropriate priorities are. It would be nice to acknowledge that, that there is a lot of commonality among these candidates. And what really matters is kind of how do they order these things as they think about it. That gets me to your question and and thought, and I agree with it, kind of observation that there is There is a trickiness in feeling manipulated by this president in terms of what we're thinking and talking about and making sure we don't lose sight of other things that are really important. I saw a tweet from John Yarmouth, a representative from Kentucky, who I will be honest, I am very angry at right now about comments that he's made um, about Kentucky's Senate race. But putting that aside, he tweeted something about recognize that while the president is using this racist language about four congresswomen. We still have the crisis at the border and we cannot look away from that. And I think this is a moment where we just have to walk and chew gum. But I am not comfortable, given what's happened this week and the conversation surrounding it, labeling this a distraction, because I think it is his I think it is his reelection strategy. I think it is intentionally his strategy, which means that it is going to dominate every news cycle and it is going to dominate the discussions in our homes and in our churches and our communities and online. And I think the best thing that we can do is say, all right, if this is his strategy, then let's all lean into it and use this as a moment to have real discussions about race in this country and not just about race, but about disagreement, about this idea that being a proud American means uncritically loving everything about this country, that wearing a shirt that looks like our flag is more important than actually honoring freedom of speech and assembly. Let's do it. If this is if this is the course he's setting and I hate to let Donald Trump define my course for anything. But but here we are. This is the course he's setting. So let's do it, Um, because I think these are conversations that we need to have. And to your point, we've probably needed to have them in more direct language for a long time. And so this is our opportunity.
1: I just can't deal with the hypocrisy of the man who stood up in his freaking inaugural dress and talked about American carnage all of a sudden having no stomach for criticism of this country. I just I cannot do it.
0: Well, that is a revealing piece of evidence in terms of what this president is about because his answer to you, Sarah, I believe would be, well, in 2015, there was American carnage and then I made America great again. And now Mm -hmm. the choice is to keep America great under my leadership, which is the most important thing for this country, because if I am not in office, look at how it will fall apart again. I mean, rest assured, everybody, what you're being sold right now is not patriotism. It is Donald Trumpism. It is about one individual and his ego and his desires and the way that he passes favors around in order to keep his place and to keep his power and to work out all kinds of stuff that he should have worked out with a therapist many decades ago. I
1: mean, the only thing that gives me comfort is that I know that he is the most miserable person at all times. Hurt people hurt people. He is a hurt person, that of which I am sure And I think it's not just that he it's not just distraction from the good work that we need to be doing these huge issues that we need to be trying to address. It's also a distraction from the fact that he is a failure as a president. He can't even keep a cabinet staffed legitimately cannot do it in all these ways, you know, that the sort of traditional indicators of a well-run administration are totally lacking the tax policy didn't produce the economic gains that they promised. Surprise. You know, he doesn't have his big deal with North Korea. He doesn't have his big deal with between Palestine and Israel. He is escalating the situation with Iran. Um, Obamacare still exists. Haven't managed to kill that yet. He certainly didn't get rid of term limits, which let's not forget, was his number one promise in the first 100 days. I have stored that away in my memory permanently because I thought that's never going to happen. So all these things, you know, they're not happening. So it's not just distracting from things that we need to be working towards. It's also distracting from the fact that he's doing a bad job.
0: Well, and not doing much of a job at all. While Mike Pence visited the border, the president was on the golf course. Again, you know, at great cost to taxpayers with Rand Paul from Kentucky, with Lindsey Graham, with David Perdue, we are watching the White House turn into a country club in front of us and that the work being done is all in air quotes and it's all passing out favors among people who are exclusive members of a very private club and the best they have, America, is trying to sell the rest of us on wanting membership to that club. Mm -hmm. That's what the red hat is about. That's your souvenir for being adjacent to what feels like power. And it is the most public version of snake oil I can imagine.
1: Well, it's not even what's so gross about it to me and so disturbing. It's not even we'll get you close to power. We'll let you be adjacent. It's that we promise, we super promise that the people that don't like you won't get close. We won't we're not going to really let you in. And you're con, you're all actually know that. But what we certainly won't do is let black and brown people in. It's like it's the same deal over and over and over again. And it's when are we going to wake up? <laughs> when are we going to wake up to this nasty devil's bargain? based on racial animus and tribalism and realize that we have big, big problems and that excluding someone else's child from the American dream gets your child no closer. Well, the conversation is certainly going to continue about what America
0: needs in 2020, making, I think, the Democratic debates incredibly important, even though we are you know, 200 plus days from the first votes being cast. So we'll be back here on Tuesday talking about what we'll be watching for in these debates, who's going to be on stage and what format. We look forward to joining you then. In the meantime... Keep having this conversation in our community. We really value your emails. We value your social media comments. We value people on Instagram telling us stories about really good work happening in their evangelical communities to help immigrants Mm -hmm. and refugees. You all bring a lot of light to what's going on here. And so keep showing up with that light. Keep talking to the people in your spheres of influence. And we'll be back with you on Tuesday.
1: And until then, I love the words of Friend of the Pod, and Hatmaker, on Instagram, which said, check in on your friends of color and those who have immigrated. You know, tell them that they belong and that we want them here. And until next week, keep it nuanced, y'all. Dylan Garvin produces Pantsuit Politics every week. David McWilliams, Joshua Allen, Linda Rucker, Martha Bernatsky, Melanie Cravey, and Tiffany Hassler. Our theme music is composed
0: and performed by Dante Lima. The music under our ads is composed and performed by Dylan
1: Garvin. Learn more about our lives, live events that we're involved in, and what we're reading each week by signing up for our weekly newsletter at pantsuitpoliticsshow.com.
0: And connect with members of the Pantsuit Politics community by following us on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter.